I'm Becky Rupert McMahon, Chief Executive of the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association. We're excited to bring you this week's My Bar Story. Throughout 2023, the CMBA will be hosting a series of podcasts that have created a living legacy in honor of our 150th anniversary. The response has been amazing, and these conversations are being shared around Northeast Ohio and even the world. Now let's get started with another bar story. My name is Russ McLaughlin, and I am with the firm of Dooley, Gambala, McLaughlin, and Pecora, located in Sheffield Village. We have a few FKAs like uh, O'Toole, McLaughlin, Dooley, Pecora, Stumphauser, O'Toole, uh, Baumgartner, and O'Toole, and before that, Michael Loffman. Yes. It was Warhola, O'Toole, Loffman, Loffman, Alderman, and Stumphauser. I am uh, in practice only in my 49th year, but I am here with my esteemed colleague, Michael Loffman, who will be celebrating 50 years in November of 2023. Michael, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? How you doing? And, well, uh, I'm doing talk. fine today, Russ. <laughs> uh, I appreciate Appreciate the introduction that you uh, uh, gave me, and just I know many of you do not know us old guys, but uh, Russ and I are longstanding legal partners uh, and friends. You grew up in Mansfield, correct? Mansfield, Ohio. Mm -hmm. I came from a poor family, and my mother and father believed in education, so I have uh, two brothers as siblings. And unfortunately, my sister has passed, but I also had a sister. And so for, for many years in the Loffman side of the family, there were only four people that had a college degree. And that was my myself, my brother, my brother and my sister. Mm -hmm. So I came from a family that believed in education. And somewhere about 1957, my parents got me Carl Sandburg's The Life of Lincoln which was broken down into the prairie years and the war years. And I read that and I admired Abraham Lincoln. And it's at that time in 1957, when I say, when people ask me what I wanted to be, I would always say a lawyer. No kidding. That early. So well, were, I love Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about your educational background. I I think it's fascinating. I know that I know that you're a former Marine, but uh, you had a very interesting major. Uh, just just go through a little bit of that for us, if you would, please. You, of course, graduated from high school. Uh, eventually, end up at Ohio State University. It was at the time of the Vietnam War. I majored in Chinese history and Vietnamese history. And I graduated in 1967, and as many of you know that are in my age group, I had a very difficult draft board, <laughs> and so therefore joined the United States Marines, and I was made an intelligence officer. My career was spent listening into the Chinese and the Vietnamese. After my service in the Marine Corps, I taught school for one year ah, okay. and realized, what did I walk into? <laughs> it was 1968, 1969, and it was crazy in the streets, and it was crazy in the school. So I started law school in 1970. Okay. And that was Case? Case, Case Western, Western Reserve? Reserve, yes. Okay. Very good. So I know you were at the AG's office. Was that your first position yeah, out, that was out of law school? Yeah, that was my first position. Was, right. um, I was assistant attorney general. One of the accomplishments I would say that I— 
like to take credit for was at the time, the attorney general of Ohio had no right to go in on Medicaid fraud. Now, I'm not talking about Medicaid fraud with with the participants. I'm talking about like the drug companies, Mm -hmm. the nursing homes and whatever. And I was given the task of finding a way for the attorney general of Ohio to get involved in Medicaid fraud. And I came up, found an 1863 Civil War statute Mm -hmm. for suppliers to the state that that allowed us. We actually, the first case was Merritt Drug here in Cleveland, Ohio. Judge Manos, if some of you that have practiced in the federal courts, a great, great judge, Mm -hmm. but tough as nails. Mm-hmm. That was the first case we brought under that 1863 law, and it was upheld. And so after that, we pursued suppliers and nursing homes and doctors who were cheating patients on the Medicaid fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that a federal statute that you dug There's up? There's also a that- federal statute on that. It's called the uh, Federal False Claims Act. Okay. So this was an Ohio statute. That yeah. You and it gives you, which was based, Ohio has a lot of statutes that are based on federal law. Mm -hmm. And that was based. So you got triple damages and things like that. You know, you and I had a lot of interesting conversations in our lunchroom back when you were working full time. And uh, I know that you've been all over the state, including a lot of the uh, rural counties and so on. Do you have any interesting anecdotes about any of those times when you were running around or or do you feel uncomfortable with any of that? (laughs) I I thought they were fun. When I was with the attorney general's office, Mm -hmm. Lawrence County, down across from Ashland, Kentucky, mm-hmm. had a lot of political misconduct. <laughs> and we had a case down there, and I'll never forget because, you know, I'm, I may be out of law school a year, and <laughs> I'm, go- I'm going to court, and I get in there and have everything ready for this argument, and Opposing counsel is a local counsel from that area. The judge, I, he, he's a notorious judge. His name was Judge Ader. He, he comes out on the bench and we rise and he said, um, I had filed a motion for judgment. And he said, why don't you introduce yourself? So I stood up and said, you know, Michael Loffman, assistant attorney general of the state. And he says to me, uh, Mr. Loffman, I neither like or care or believe anybody who represents the state. (laughs) And then the next guy, the guy from Lawrence County, gets up and he says, hey, George, how's the kids? And right then and there, I knew I'm in trouble. (laughs) And he said, do you have an opening statement, Mr. Loffman? I said, yes, sir. Yes, Your Honor. And he, I gave my opening statement. He took his gavel and went Mm-hmm. judgment for the defendants. And then he leans over the bench and he says to me, Mr. Loffman, you take that up to the Fifth Circuit and see if you can overturn me. <laughs> Back in the day. <laughs> yeah, I'm, we probably, hopefully we change from that. <laughs> I think that, I think so. Most of my travels over the state is after I left the Attorney General's office, I went with Means, Bickmer, Bakeholder, and Baker. Okay. And they're based in Columbus? They're based in Columbus on Gay Street at the time. Okay. And so we actually represented school districts 
all over the state. Mm-hmm. So I used to put about 66,000 miles on my car every year. And my then wife would say to me, I don't know where he is tonight, but I know it ends in Ville. <laughs> okay. For those listening, this uh, I consider you a preeminent school lawyer, and that's how I came to know you. You were a school lawyer and specialist with our firm before I joined the firm uh, about 22 years ago, something like that. So uh, school districts, my God, how many different school districts have you represented? It depends. If I was when I was stationed in uh, Columbus, mm-hmm. you know, almost everyone in Delaware County, uh, Franklin County, the real the real challenge was when we would go down to um, Morgan County or Vinton County, mm-hmm. which are very poor counties, and they didn't want to pay for Columbus lawyers. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you were dealing in cases, and your own client was. A, against you because they just didn't want to pay for you. But up up here in with in this area, I've represented districts in Cuyahoga County, Huron County, Erie County, Ottawa County, uh, Wood County, Medina County, Summit County, Richland County, and Ashland County. Wow. So at one time when I was younger, younger, because mm-hmm. it's hard because a lot of travel, a lot of nights out. It would be about 75 to 80 school districts I rep- would represent at any yeah. one time. And just to mention, a lot of people give advice to school supers and, and administrators, but you also handle labor negotiations during that period of time, correct? Schools like a corporation have the same issues like with the Fair Labor Standards Act, mm-hmm. with unemployment, mm-hmm. with the EEOC. But they are also governed by the Ohio Constitution and the U.S. Constitution. So you get a lot of constitutional cases. And in fact, I had a case, Migra versus the Warren City School Board. And that case actually ends up in the Supreme Court. And a decision is made in 1985. And I was still with the big firm at that time when the case started. So therefore, when it went on appeal to the Supreme Court. I handled everything at the common pleas in the Sixth Circuit. But when it went to the Supreme Court, a senior partner you took the argument. You, did, you didn't stand on the red carpet then? No, right? I, did, okay. I did not stand on the red carpet. Okay. But the U.S. Supreme Court in that decision relied upon the motion that I had filed for summary judgment in the federal court. A lot of the decision is lifted from my brief. So mm-hmm. I got some yeah, pat on the back. Yeah. It's always a compliment when you see your words coming back from somebody else. That's for sure. I know in my mere 49, almost 49 years, I've seen a few changes. But my God, school law has to have changed dramatically over your career. It has changed because I'm a 50-year duration lawyer. When I started, if you went to the law books and looked up cases involving schools, A vast majority involved the Maslin City School District and whether or not they were importing players to play for the Maslin Tiger football team. Mm -hmm. Honest to God, there must be at least 10 Ohio Supreme Court cases on that. Okay. It was not until 1970 that the Ohio Supreme Court recognized that a board of education was bound 
by a collective bargaining agreement with a teacher's union. And that comes uh, the Dayton Board of Education versus the Dayton Education Association. Okay. So once you start getting labor relations into the schools, that's that's a thing that, that changes. Mm-hmm. And then you also have in 1968, you have that very famous case of Tinkers versus Des Moines Board of Education, where the two a brother and sister protested the Vietnam War by wearing a black armband. Mm-hmm. And at that time, uh, they were either suspended or expelled. I don't remember now. And that went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's where the Supreme Court wrote that those famous words, students, teachers, and staff do not leave their constitutional rights at the school door. Mm-hmm. And so when I first got into the practice, I would say most of my practice at that time was 85% federal practice because they were filing laws. Like if you non-renewed a teacher, which is a way to say they're letting the teacher go. If you alleged a constitutional violation, Mm -hmm. that got you into court. There was a lot of every time anything happened, it, it became a constitutional issue. And then in 1982, they passed the Bargaining Act, and that pulls everything back into like labor relations and contractual laws. So then your cases would go that way. When you go to court, whether you're the teachers union or the board of education, it takes a long time to get a decision. So then things then transitioned into arbitration, where you go to the American Arbitration Association, get an arbitrator, and the and you abide by what the arbitrator rules. So there was an evolution from no court rights to constitutional rights to labor rights mm-hmm. to saying some third party who has the right to make a decision on an issue that you have a dispute over. So that's a that's quite a huge change. It is a big change, and of course, the population has changed. Students have changed, teachers have changed, administrators have changed, along with all of the laws. Does anything jump out as the most dramatic change for a school law specialist? I think we're pretty settled now, mm-hmm. but one of the issues that really generated a lot and still generates a lot of activity for legal representation in the schools is uh, the 1975 decision of the U.S. Supreme Court concerning the right, due process rights of students Mm -hmm. before you can expel or suspend them. Okay. And Ohio passed a statutory procedure on how you're to handle a suspension or expulsion. Kids are no different today than they were back then. They still get in trouble. (laughs) Maybe slightly different kind. <laughs> well, yes. When I first started up until about 1988, I never dealt with a client with a gun in the school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now, well, I don't actively practice that much anymore. But up until I quit practicing, I have had numerous guns in the school. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that uh, all of the administrators and the teachers have found unique ways to need your services from time to time, too. Oh, yes. I agree (laughs) with that. Most school districts in the state of Ohio cannot operate if they didn't have a competent lawyer as someone to turn to for advice. Mm -hmm. 
Has the world uh, gotten a lot bigger for you as it has for me? I, I know when I started out in 74, it was a smaller bench, smaller bar. You knew most of the people in your practice area. You knew where you stood with them and who were reliable and maybe some not so much. Uh, has that been a, a factor for you over, over the years? I'm not sure about that because the practice of school law puts you in a, a circle Mm-hmm. Like, for example, when they were all those constitutional, I got to meet a lot of lawyers that were doing constitutional federal practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, then I moved to something else. So there's groups that you get to, but it's not like being in the Bar Association, you get to know all of them. There's been a definite change in the way practice was when I first started to the way practice now is. Some of it's based on technology. Uh, some of it is based on different, uh, newer philosophies about how someone should rep- represent a client. Mm-hmm. I- here in the Northern District, everything has to be filed electronically. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, <laughs> when I got my first case I had with the Attorney General, they told me to go down to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals in Columbus and file this with the clerk's office. I didn't even know what building they were in, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and now everything's done electronically. But the other thing I've noticed is like when I first started practice, I've I've worked with three different generations of superintendents. Mm-hmm. Those that became superintendents in the 50s, those that came after them and now much younger, the new generation mm-hmm. of superintendents. Mm-hmm. Well, for example, I'm a social person. I like the interaction between myself and the client. But I had a number of clients that just told me, look, I don't want you to call me. I don't want you to write me a letter. Send me a text or an email. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For me, from where I came from, from the standpoint of practice, that was a major shift that I had to evolve into. And I guess I would say, I'll tell you right now, I'm more comfortable in the having a social relationship with the client rather than a technological. I find the same thing. And of course, when you tend to have to type something, uh, it can sound curt or incomplete. And then you end up with a, 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 a little communication issue. And I found that myself. And obviously, you're, you're addressing the same type of thing. You'd rather have a conversation like we are right now across a table, but, but times have moved on. Right, right. I'm not saying <laughs> yeah. it's wrong. It's yeah. just different. Sure. It's different from how I practice. There's one thing on our list here, and you've been a member of the Cleveland Metro Bar Association for a couple of years, haven't you, Michael? Yes. I um, When I first decided to really, 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 really slow down, mm-hmm. I didn't have anything to do. I don't like golf, and um, <laughs> I have some health issues, so I can't play tennis. I can't do th- things I used to like. But I actually joined the Metro Bar because they were looking for, they have a committee here that does pro bono appeals. Mm-hmm. And the person in charge at that time talked to me. She asked me to be for this committee to review all the cases, get all the facts, do the research, figure out the law and all that to see who they could uh, represent. That's the reason I joined. 
the okay. Metro Bar Association. I um, have been a member of the Lorraine Bar Association, and I was president mm-hmm. from 98 to 99. I just wanted to comment that uh, people that don't know Michael, uh, one of the most remarkable things that I've always found about you is that you seem to have a photographic memory. And whether that's true or not, it's, uh, it's, been, it's been a pleasure always uh, to, to get into these chats with you. And whether it's the Civil War or whether it's something that happened in the, in the 60s when we were, we were both going through those times, I've uh, really, really enjoyed chatting with you and always been impressed by your phenomenal memory. When I was president of the Lorraine Bar Association, one of our concerns was we were not getting enough young lawyers to get engaged. Mm -hmm. And I think being a lawyer and also being a member of the Bar Association has assisted me outside the profession. Uh, I have worked with a couple African foundations. I have uh, worked with patients that are dying. I think those all arise in me, partly because of me, but it's also part of the tradition that lawyers come from historically in this country and in this city and metropolitan area. You and I have been close for 22 years. One of the things that has uh, been in the back of my mind, and I don't know why, you're very easy to talk to. You're one of the most kindest, gentlest persons that I know. But I, I, I've I, never understood in why and how you became a lawyer. Because <laughs> you do not come from a tradition of lawyers like I do, some of our other partners. I do not. No. My dad was a, a self-taught carpenter who became a foreman, who became a super, who became a project manager. And I didn't know until after he passed that he did not have a high school education. So, uh, no, it was it was sort of a surprise. After I obtained my Bachelor of Business BBA degree from Cleveland State in 1971, looked around, and you remember what 1971 was like with the gas lines and bad economy and limited opportunities. And I did not see anything that I wanted to do or was, was qualified to do. I took the LSAT on a whim, and uh, I apparently hit a home run with it. I don't remember what the score was, and it wouldn't translate into the modern score today, but I did well. And at some point or another, I also took the, uh, I think it was called the ATGSB, the, the Graduate School and Business Admission Test. That one didn't come out the same way at all. <laughs> and at some point or another, I just started thinking that that might really be an interesting way to uh, uh, make a living. My uh, wife was my high school sweetheart, so I stayed right in town the whole time. So Cleveland State was my option. Uh, and uh, once I took the uh, the LSAT, I was an administrative admit at Cleveland Marshall College of Law and just kept my nose down and kept working hard and ended up with... Uh, with my degree in 74, passed the bar, and have practiced ever since. Were you the first in your family then? Oh, certainly. First and only. Yeah. When Once I got my, my license, I literally opened up shop by myself, hung out a shingle, 
Got a part-time job prosecuting in the city of Lorraine, thanks to just walking from door to door and knocking on uh, doors, and somebody remembered me. And when an opening happened in the city of Lorraine for a young prosecutor, uh, I started the job on St. Patrick's Day in 1975. Stayed there about a well, better part of five years. Uh, judge Ewers became the uh, judge. He was the magistrate. Asked me if I'd take the magistrate's job. So I did that for about another year. And on and on we went. Back then, my career was varied. One day I'd be doing a divorce. The next day I'd be handling a personal injury case. The next day I'd do a real estate transaction. The next day, I'd be handling a probate, and I went to seminar after seminar after seminar. I couldn't go to enough seminars trying to stay conversant in all of those areas. That's one of the uh, major changes, just like in medical practice, the specialization so that the hometown general practitioner is oh, a thing of the past. It is, and very frankly, now... Uh, even though I'm not board certified, I specialize in estate planning, probate, and I still do real estate because I think they're intertwined and uh, small business. But if I was handling that many different areas of practice, I couldn't feel competent anymore. Fortunately, I'm in a position where uh, sometimes we're fixing problems that were created by people that really didn't specialize in or weren't conversant in those areas. I really love the fact that I was a jack of all trades. Somehow I got through it without grievances or lawsuits or any of that sort of thing. But I have to say, a lot of times I look back and say, oh my God, did I really know what I was doing? Now that you specialize, you know what you're doing. It's not quite as much fun. You don't have as much variety, but uh, it, it really, it makes you feel much more competent to uh, to do pretty much the same areas of law over and over again and go to the specialty seminars, that type of thing. I think that probably it's a little bit easier on the solo now that we have all of the technology at our fingertips and the seminars online and, and those types of things. But I still feel for them that having to try to stay conversant in uh, more than a half a dozen different areas. I feel like a couple of old war horses talking about things like how it used to be. I think a lot of people know how it used to be. Uh, some things were better in that we knew it was a smaller bar. It was a little more collegial to some extent. Discovery was very informal, in my opinion, maybe incomplete. But I think things led to let's get to the bottom of it. And if we just can't can't work this out, we'd have our trial. Now it's mostly discovery battles and further discovery battles and motions to show cause and so on. And uh, I don't know. I, I used to enjoy everybody just getting ready, set, and go and try your case. That To me, that was really, really enjoyable. Thank you for joining us for another edition of My Bar Story. We appreciate the hundreds of you who have downloaded and subscribed to this podcast. Let's keep this conversation going. Visit clemetrobar.org forward slash podcast to listen, subscribe, and to schedule a recording of your own bar story. See you next week.